News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk freedom of information. No, not here in BC. It's not just something to highlight as a concern in our province, but also right across the country. Because every year, the federal government receives tens of thousands of anonymous requests for records under the Access to Information Act. We're going to talk to Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken about this because he has a very interesting situation to tell us about. Good morning, David. Yeah, good morning, Simi. And and, and just on the terms we're going to use, when people talk about uh, BC's records laws, these are all records laws, you'll hear the term FOI, Freedom of Information. And here in Ottawa, we talk about the Access to Information Act, ATI, sometimes known as the Access to Information and Privacy Act, which means ATIP. So if you hear me go ATIP, that's really FOI. Right. These days. Okay. Yeah, just, Thank just you. Just soar on terms there, yeah. Thank you. Okay, so tell me about this particular case here. There was a request that was made, what, in August of 2019? Well, it, there's a whole series of things. Yes, they, the, the, uh, yes I'll, I'll sort of lay out the context for this. The issues for all Canadians, for journalists, for researchers, for uh, NGOs, businesses, um, all, all, all Canadians use FOI or ATIPs, ATIs, to get information from the government. And in getting that information, there's usually a, a couple of issues. Governments, first of all, don't want to give you information. I don't care what anybody says. A new Democrat, a liberal or conservative who, in opposition, they often say, oh, we we're going to yeah. reform information laws, but they don't do so so much in government. Anyways, the, there's there's a few issues. The, one of the first issues is fees, the cost of getting this stuff, the fees you have to pay to file an access to information request, and then sometimes the fees you have to pay for the, the, the photocopying or the search time. And I know BC's just been through lots mm-hmm. of arguments over the new law there on fees. The other, uh, the other big issue is the delays. So governments, when they write these laws about records, can write in lots of excuses for bureaucrats to take their time in producing the records that we're asking them to produce. And so delay is as good as, this is the Canada's Information Commissioner, delay is as good as uh, not getting the records um out as as in refusing the records and so i do a whole lot of as they say ati work it's a core staple i and the, uh, my colleagues here in the uh, in the global bureau in, in ottawa we, we file a lot of access to information requests and they take forever to come back to us and so that's what we talk about when we talk about yeah, access delayed is essentially access denied and so finally, I just, I just figured I have to write up some of these ridiculous delays. So I zeroed in the one that sort of triggered me, if you will, to write up this story about the delays is I asked the government for a, a really simple memo. This is the Foreign Affairs Department, Global Affairs Canada. Um, I asked them for what I thought was a really simple request, which was, um, I, I learned that there was a memo that had been written about a program that uh, in which the federal government takes foreign diplomats posted here to Canada on a tour of our three Arctic territories. And I was just curious about that. It seemed like a good idea, and mm-hmm. I just wondered what it cost and how many people um, sort of went on this. And so um, I decided to uh, ask for that. 
So I knew the title. I knew the document number. Should be easy to find. Yeah. Easy to process, I figured. Easy to release. Wrong. <laughs> the government is required to release these records in 30 days from the request, and it took them 520 days to release this what? simple little memo I'd asked for. 520 days. And, and it was all of three pages long. And they didn't even have to black out a single word. I didn't wasn't asking for anything secret. It was three three pages, five hundred and twenty days of delay, and not a word black out. But that and that's global affairs, and that's not just the worst of it at global affairs. I am still waiting for a briefing book I asked for for our trade minister when he went down to Chile for a conference of other trade ministers. I asked for that 837 days ago. I'm still waiting. Remember, they're supposed to t give it to you in 30. Yeah. They do have some leeway to extend it a bit if there's some extenuating circumstances, but some very specific reasons in our act. I'm waiting. It, it took 550 days to get a 10-page briefing note I asked for that was prepared for then Foreign Minister Christian Freeland um, when she had a phone call with her Mexican, so, you know, a little briefing note ahead of a phone call. It took 550 days to get that back. Um, 330 days to release a memo that the Foreign Affairs Department had produced about how China's dealing with plastic pollution. Um, and I could go on and on and on. And it's not just foreign affairs, it's national defense, it's, and, and so on and so on. And the other worst thing is, during this pandemic, n nobody who processes uh, access to information requests was declared an essential worker. I thought they should have been essential because well, yeah. ATI, ATIP, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a key tool for transparency and accountability. So they weren't essential. They all got sent home. So the ATIP system essentially ground to a halt. That was early in 2020. Well, they're still using the pandemic as an excuse to delay requests. You, you'll get a standard sort of boilerplate acknowledgement when you file a request that they'll say, oh, uh, there might be some possible delays in treating a request because we're still dealing with the COVID. Well, you know, the rest of the world and the rest of government has adjusted their operations at this yeah. point. We are dealing with COVID and still doing what we're supposed to do. In any event, the the, the information commissioner and the minister in charge of the whole ATA program says, you can't use pandemic as an excuse to delay. You've got to get your stuff out there. There's nothing in the law that says you can do this, and yet they're, they're essentially it. breaking the law. I think it's I think it's outrageous, and I, I wish more. I hope more Canadians get as outraged as I am about well, this kind of delay. Believe me, in BC, we are primed to be outraged about this because we've been talking about it here for weeks too. But was it always like this, David? Like, has it gotten worse during yes. the pandemic? Were the delays also bad prior to the pandemic? Yes, that's a really good point, Simi. Listen, I, I've been here doing this since the Jean Chrétien was prime minister. And, um, and, and don't forget, ATIP and FOI laws are relatively recent things. I think the federal law, uh, I think it might have came in under Chrétien's time. Um, but it's not, it's, it's certainly not much further back. I don't think it was Mulroney. I think it was, was, was Chrétien. Right. So, uh, it, it was bad when he finished. Um, it was worse during the Harper era. Uh, same issues, fees and acts and delays. And it has gotten worse uh, during the Trudeau time. It has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And Trudeau, remember I said in opposition, you know, politicians right. promised to fix this thing. And Trudeau was one of those guys, oh, we're going to fix and reform oh, the yeah. access to information system. And it is just, uh, it's as bad as ever. And, and believe me, this is not just my opinion. This is the opinion of what we call the ATI research community um, here in Ottawa. Um, I would say just about any of my global news colleagues that use the system. Uh, it's just gotten worse. And now we're seeing, you know, again, you're right, to, to turn it to BCs, you know, we're seeing new Democrat politicians, some of whom used to be here in Ottawa, Nathan Cullen, Murray Rankin, for example. And when they were opposition MPs in Ottawa, 
Uh, we have it on record. They're complaining about the access yeah. information system. Murray Rankin specifically saying the $5 fee that you have to pay in Ottawa was too much. And here they are part of a government in Victoria, uh, now the government, and raising fees. And, and, you know, they can say whatever they want. You raise a fee by definition. You are inhibiting access for uh, NGOs, church groups, everyday Canadians, uh, when you have to pay $10, that's there for one reason. It's to get you to think twice and possibly exactly. not ask for the information. Exactly. All right, David, thanks so much for telling us about this today. Hey, no problem, Simi. Have a great morning. Fascinating stuff. That's David Aiken, Global National's chief political correspondent, talking about whether it's freedom of information here in B.C., or access to information in Ottawa. Still the same, right? Obfuscate, obfuscate, obfuscate. This is Mornings with Simi. All this week, we have been hearing that all over the world, there are you know travel restrictions being put in place to try and prevent the spread of the Omicron variant. It's a new variant. It's considered highly transmissible, but there's still a huge process that we're going through to learn more about it. Now, that the process of learning has made, I think, a lot of people impatient, saying, well, we have to do something. We have to act now. We heard Dr. Bonnie Henry telling us that we need to rethink our gatherings, you know, coming up in the month of December, who we are gathering with. But the question is, what do we know about what would work and what wouldn't work about this? Well, joining us is Sally Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for being back with us. You're welcome. When you look at what we've got right now, do you think that's enough? Well, right now, um, with Omicron potentially not in British Columbia, we're fine, but we know it's going to get here. And we know it's that our borders are porous enough. Uh, my guess is that it's going to come in, at least if, if not from Africa or Europe, it'll come in from the United States. So it's a question of when and what we do about it when it gets here. So what do we need to do? You know, I think we um, we instituted this really great way of looking, testing people when they went in for a COVID test and looking specifically at sites in the genome that might have been alpha. We did that before and we can do it again. And actually, Omicron has that same site we can look for, but we've stopped doing those really fast, rapid PCR tests. So that's one thing we can do just to nip it in the bud, find those cases fast, and really ramp up contact tracing and restrictions around those cases when they do pop up. So I think we're going to see more of that. We saw um, uh, more testing of travelers, which is great, but there's a big Achilles heel, and that is travel from the United States. Travel from the United States was the number one source of variants of concern last year, and uh, the new announcement about testing did not include travelers from the United States. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're prepared to adjust anything on that. So we just reopened that border. And that's right. That's right. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a lot. I'm going to echo a lot of other scientists that say rapid antigen tests. These are the kind of ones that you can buy. They're a little like pregnancy tests. They look like that. You can buy them in the States for a dollar. They're free in the United Kingdom. Um we could be using those to much greater effect. A person comes across the border, goes to the United States, comes back within 24 hours. We give them a couple of rapid antigen tests, one to take right at the border, maybe another one in two or three days after, and you know, maybe even another, another one a few days later. They're not perfect at catching every um, case, but they would sure capture more than we are currently doing if we're not testing at all. Okay, do you think the smaller gathering idea works? Like, should we be definitely doing that? 
You know, I think we're going to have to really um, keep an eye on the numbers. Um, when Omicron comes, yes, we're going to be back to small groups um, and other restrictions. I think there's so many unknowns right now. Right. We know uh, we know it's um, we've seen it spreading faster in many different regions, but a lot of those regions don't have the same don't have the high vaccination rates we have here or the schedule of vaccinations that we used in Canada. So, so many unknowns. But on the other hand, we still have a lot of unvaccinated people. And, you know, this is, I'd like to maybe put it this way. The, it's like learning to drive. This, this virus is going to keep, like, jumping, being a road obstacle or being something that jumps out onto the road. Well, what's the best way to become a good driver? Yeah, practice. Vaccines are practice for our bodies. They let us, they let us body, our bodies learn this virus and what it looks like and learn to avoid it, learn to clear it from our bodies. So in that, um, that's why scientists are really, it's like you wouldn't want to go driving without having practice. Well, you don't want to hit, you don't want Omicron to come. You don't want to be exposed to COVID right. without having practiced. So get that vaccine so your body can practice. Well, I think a lot of people would like to do exactly that. They would like to get their booster shot, too. So should we be speeding things up? Yeah. So I think that there was a push to um, allow people 50 and over to now be eligible for their booster. So um, I think that's going to come. And uh, I know a lot of parents were not sure. They wanted to see the data for the 5 to 11-year-olds before necessarily registering or getting their kids um, vaccinated. And I would say... Sign up, get your kids protected, get their immune systems practicing on this spike protein before Omicron comes. Right. So you're saying, listen, this is a, even though there's a lot we don't know, as you said, it just should still heighten some awareness. Absolutely. And we want our bodies to have that kind of base of immunity that will really help it um, recognize faster this virus if we catch it later in the future. Okay, so then should we be expanding the booster doses and should more people, should we be doing this faster like we're seeing in some other provinces? Yeah, yes, likely. Um, that would be, you know, there's so many ways we could move forward. I'd probably ramp up the, the PCR testing and the rampant antigen testing um, sooner so that we can detect the cases and uh, as I said, nip them in the butt. That's what we want to do. But boosters will help too. You know, there's so much, um, so much, so many different ways to prepare. It, um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see boosters before Christmas for many ages. Do you think is part of the concern? Do you think that we kind of scaled down the system and now we have to scale it back up again? You know, it's partly that. It's partly actually we don't know if it's needed. Or, right? Um, for those people that have had vaccinations more than six months ago, it's um, very likely needed because the antibodies that kind of first line of defense that are already circulating in your body are go go down start to go down six months to two years so um that um, for those people who had vaccinations really really early they they should be getting boosters but you know i had you know many of us had it mid midsummer um late summer as our, la our last vaccine so it's not it's not clear how much the boosters are going to help mind you when my time comes, I'm going <laughs> to sign up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would want to do the same thing. So I'm getting a lot of emails from people who, like me, got the two AstraZeneca doses. And, yes. we, and we are told that we are eligible, but I haven't heard anything. 
Yeah. So, you know, there was there have been some problems with the AstraZeneca people being registered necessarily. Go in to the Get um, Vaccine BC government webpage and register right now because, yeah, that's exactly right. People on AstraZeneca, we know that that gets really well boosted with one of the RNA, RNA vaccines. So if you got AstraZeneca before and you get either Pfizer or Moderna, that's a really great um teacher for your immune system that really boosts it. Okay. So then what advice, Sally, do you think we should be following, you know, for the next six weeks or so until we know we're into the new year? What should, what kind of advice should we follow? You know, I, I think this is one of the ones where we're going to have to monitor. We're going to have to monitor how fast it spreads and how um, severe it is, how many people go into hospital. We need a little bit more. Omicron is new in the scene. The whole world is just learning about it. But so pay attention to the news, pay attention to those um, recommendations. The risks right now are low, but um, you know, my projections would be that it will start spreading um, towards the end of December and then really skyrocketing in the new year. Um, so we, in order to prevent that, we're going to have to really pay attention. And when we get the word to limit our social interactions, do so. Right. So even like it feels like we're getting a bit of a heads up now. So do you feel like we should exactly. heed heed in advance? Yes, exactly. That heads up we because it's not here yet, it can't spread here yet. We don't that we know of. That's the heads up. Okay, we've got to start monitoring again. We st- we have to we know we know the things that work. Um there are some small indications that this is um potentially even uh, more airborne. So those that's um circulation, well fitting masks, those are the things that work. They worked against the old variants and they're very, very likely important with Omicron. All right. Thank you very much for chatting to us about it this morning. Oh, you're welcome. That's Sally Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia, talking about, you know what, we're getting, we're, we should be heeding the advance warnings. They're not rules yet. They're not new public health orders yet, she said, but good to pay attention to what is being said. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update now on the flooding situation. We know extensively about what's been happening in Abbotsford. We know about Princeton and Merritt, but other communities have also been hit by this. Last couple of days have been very stressful for many Maple Ridge residents too. They've been receiving warnings about flooding in their community, been told to get ready to evacuate. So let's get an update on that now. Joining us is Mike Morton, the mayor of Maple Ridge. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Simi, and good morning to your listeners. What is the situation in Maple Ridge this morning in regards to flooding? Well, we have a pretty amazing community with some very beautiful geography and lots of rivers and and lakes and um, a dam. Yep, there's a lot to deal with uh, as far as our natural environment is concerned. Um, in in you know the. Dealing with a dam is uh, is always concerning, and there's been some amazing work done by uh, you know flood management uh, to ensure that the dam is um, allowed to to uh, offload its water carefully, and some of it going into the state uh, river system, and some of it uh, is being um, spilled over the top of the dam as well as through the gate. Um, residents of Silver Valley, who number in 8,000 people, uh, just about lost access two weeks ago to that entire community. So uh, that was pretty concerning for us, and, and we need to uh, take a look at that. Um, 
three, uh, 600,000 people a year go visit the Gold Bears Park. And, you know, that's of concern to us because there's no alternate access route into that community as well as the uh, great, very visited provincial park. Um, locally, we've uh, had our EOC uh, activated for uh, some considerable time on and off over the last couple of weeks. Uh, these atmospheric rivers bring about uh, an extraordinary amount of water in a very short time. You know, this is a challenge for reservoirs along the North Shore as well as through the Alouette system, and you know, everyone's monitoring this very closely. And uh, fortunately, the third word rain now. Uh, Wave is, um, you know, it's lighter than what was forecasted. So that's pretty fortunate. And the reservoir will now move back to a more controlled situation. And today, that, that's going to happen over time. And we'll be out uh, inspecting our bridges and, and parks and making sure that uh, everything came through okay. Right. Uh, Mayor Morden, has this been a real learning experience, you think, too? You mentioned, you know, thinking about Golden Ears Park and access roads. What lessons do you think can be learned from this moving forward? Um. I'd say that uh, my colleagues around the region have met several times, and, you know, this is about uh, best situation to be prepared, uh, lessons learned as far as what we need to do, build better, have better uh, infrastructure, and to always be prepared and ensure that, number one, we, we keep in mind that uh, we've got to keep people safe, and uh, to actually take action on these things. Uh, my brand-new chief administrative officers had quite the whirlwind four weeks, along with a brand-new fire chief as well both experienced, but uh, they've mobilized a lot. And I've heard the words issued uh, um, towards infrastructure and drainage and EOC plans. So um, that's what it's got to be about. It's got to be about preparedness and keeping people safe. Okay, so do you feel like for now, perhaps Maple Ridge is is in good shape now? I would say, Cindy, that... um, we, uh, we got lucky. I have to say that um, I'm very grateful for um, all the first responders and works crews that have been out there. We had uh, those that rode the West Coast Express last night got, uh, got diverted and they weren't able to get through because some mud came down onto the tracks from a property in the middle of Maple Ridge. And, uh, you know, it was amazing to watch so many things mobilize out to deal with that. And uh, the West Coast Express was put together for tomorrow, well, today. Uh, it will have run in part with some uh, some bus um, service as well. And uh, those crews were out there when I went by just after midnight last night. Um, those crews were out there working to uh, get those tracks clean and ready to go. And, uh, you know, TransLink's uh, chief administrative officer was in touch with me uh, in the wee hours. Uh, hydro staff, uh, uh, people from uh, Canadian Pacific, uh, you know, everybody's pulling together to do their part. And, you know, it's it's really amazing to see the amount of collaboration and working together here, you know, in these times of need. Right. Is that so interesting, though? Because, like, we talk about emergency planning, and it's not a very sexy thing to talk about when there's no emergencies on, but it, we sure do see the benefit of it now, don't we? Oh, 100%. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, you know, we, we've had the pandemic uh, just a little less than two years ago, and you know, our cities and their leaders become brokers of information and solving supply chain problems. And, you know, we go through COVID and then we, we, we deal with, you know, masks and sanitizers and keeping uh, people in the front lines of health uh, safe and uh, being able to do what they're doing and supporting them. And then there's a heat dome. And now we have, um, you know, Mother Nature and its cycle of events uh, with severe weather. And then, of course, there's the standard wet coast. So, you know, here we are in a, in a flood cycle and, um, you know, it's just impressive to see people out there bagging, sandbagging and helping others and rerouting supply chains to make sure everyone gets what they need. What is the situation then with the access to Golden Ears right now? I know that road was flooded over yesterday. 
Uh, that's correct. Um, you know, it's, there was an accident there on that roadway in and out uh, as well. And, you know, there's just the one route. Um, so we've been, our community plan does call for a bridge over at 240th Street, and uh, we're, we're pressing to get that done. And uh, that's, you know, communities that uh, have these interesting geographies. Uh, when you put homes in these, some of these areas, you've got to make sure there's more than one access. So that's the real lesson to be learned here is to make sure that you plan well and provide property to keep people safe. Okay, so then what is the message this morning, Mayor Morden? So what do people need to know about what's going on in Maple Ridge? What people need to know is, is that we're, we've got things well in hand, but uh, Mother Nature has an aspect of uh, being the overarching decider, and uh, we're well, well prepared to deal with what's coming. Uh, 8,000 uh, notifications went out to uh, people that uh, might get cut off if uh, floodwaters come back over 232nd Street. Uh, that was nearly completely disconnected two weeks ago uh, with half a meter of water coming over that 232nd bridge. That was the potential call, and it didn't happen. We got lucky the rains didn't, didn't come through. So, you know, I mean, frankly, it's about uh, some amazing resilience and cooperation and um, so many working together in senior government as well as, you know, ourselves and first responders and uh, watching those great people in the community come and step up to the call yeah. of duty in times of need. So many generous people to me. It's just, uh, and I get the tempers are pretty frayed right now over over the last couple of years. Uh, you know what? Citizens are sharing alerts and information, and we're all pulling together, and it really does a heart good. And uh, all you got to do is look to uh, Mayor Braun, and everybody knows now what Sumas Lake is all about. Yeah. So, um, pretty significant stuff, and we've got to do better. Oh, well, you know what? It's good to hear that uh, Maple Ridge is doing all right this morning. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Mayor Morton, thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome, Simi. Thanks for uh, being given the opportunity to give an update. I uh, just uh, will say that, uh, you know, it's always compassionate, caring people. I listened to your fundraising uh, just your last day. And uh, you know what? Uh, it, it's great that so many people will step up in yeah. times of trouble and put their community first. That is so true. Thank you for that message. We appreciate that. That's Mike Morton, the mayor of Maple Ridge. He's so true that there has been a lot of good going on out there. People have stepped up to help their neighbors or people they don't even know, not even their neighbors in the other community, but they just know they want to help out. And you know what? We're going to need more of that moving forward. So Maple Ridge sounds like they are in a holding pattern this morning, but as Mayor Morton says it they do sound like they dodged the worst of it that is a good this is mornings with simi oh that music is very familiar to so many people because every year children and families they make it a tradition to go and see a performance of the nutcracker but do you have any idea how much work goes into putting on one of those performances every year our raji sohal joins us now with more on that good morning Good morning, Simi. Yeah, every notable dance company, not just in BC, but really in Canada, in the world, puts on the Nutcracker every Christmas season. So the Go Ballet Company is no different. That's G-O-H. And Go is a legendary dance school on Main Street in Vancouver. Maybe you've seen the building before. And they're known for going all out with their production of the Nutcracker. Go Ballet is run by Chan Go. And I talked to her and she told me that this year due to COVID, they're not performing on the big stage. What they're going to do instead is go into um, some high schools. And instead, they've also made a documentary about the process behind this huge production. So I'm going to play a little clip now for, for you from the documentary. Nutcracker is a very important repertoire. 
It's a sharing of the stage with international renowned dancers. Students can take part. And inside Zoe? Bum, 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 bum. Nobody knows the billions of things that go on before you buy that ticket. What about if you flipped this and put it up there? But then we'd have to push tall reindeer and unicorns down. They can wait. We are so vested in the development of our dancers. If I don't get them to a certain level, it's not going to speak to the standard of the production. Down, too, too low, Nat. Fly you're by yourself. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, good try. So, Simi, that was a clip from a new documentary. The short movie is called The Reality of a Dream, and it looks at the behind the scenes of putting the Nutcracker together. So it premieres next week online for free, and the doc follows five local kids as they prepare for the Nutcracker, the biggest performance of the year, and I guess for for their careers at that point. And you get a glimpse into what is like the scheduling nightmare of trying to get that many people on the same page to make the Nutcracker happen. Uh, the auditioning, the casting, even the costumes, all of that Simi, is such a massive undertaking. But you also get to see just the sheer joy that these uh, teens and younger kids beam when they find out that they've been cast. Um, the documentary also includes uh, two as two of its mi- uh, bigger figures in, in it. Uh, they're male dancers, which is interesting because it dispels stereotypes. And one of those guys is a refugee from Brazil. So his story really tugs at your heartstrings. I know some people are going to be hearing this, Simeon, thinking, okay, it's just a doc about, you know, some kids doing some twirls. No, it is intense. You'd think that they were being trained for the Olympics. I talked to founder Chan Go about that, and she says that the kids' practice schedules around the Nutcracker is unrelenting. We expect a lot out of the cast members. Um, they have to be true professionals. Um, the consistency of work, that's all practice within the months leading up. And then they sometimes do two shows a day. So uh, keeping up with the stamina and the expectations um, of the production is a big one. So I asked her, Simi, what the kids in the production think about all this uh, brutal training. Let's listen to another clip from the movie. After class, you must feel sore. That's the only way you know that you've tried your best. Sometimes you go into the classroom with clean tides and you went out with bloody tides. The hardest part is probably just finding time for myself. We're dancing nine hours a day, every day. Physio, acupuncture, ultrasounding, massaging. If you're a dancer, you're an athlete and you have to be an athlete. And it doesn't matter how fit you are, you are still going to hurt every single day when you get out of bed and you have to start over again. Raji, that is severe. Like that first, (laughs) the first kid there who said, if you're not sore, you're not working hard. I was like, whoa. Oh yeah, she was probably one of the younger ones too. Yeah. And you heard about bleeding feet as well. I mean, people don't know the amount of work it takes, nor just how athletic ballet is. This is what... uh, makes ballet so mesmerizing is that um, uh, the key to all that practice is to make it effortless. So if that's what the audience uh, takes away, then the dancers have done a brilliant job. Um, We're not allowed to show the the, the difficulty, the hard breathing, the, the challenging steps or the harsh landings were supposed to be as light as a feather and very graceful, even though your ter- toes might be hurting. 
See, now I feel exhausted just listening to all of this. <laughs> right? Simi, this documentary is really behind the scenes and it makes you appreciate seeing the Nutcracker in person. I don't know if you go every year, but I try to and I've seen everything from uh, you know the big performances at CUNY, Queen Elizabeth Theater. I've seen uh, tiny performances put on at schools. This doc will make me think before I see the next one about <laughs> how much work has to go into it for the troupe, for the dancers, for uh, the, the managers in it. Just so much work. And it also, Simi, actually, it made me think about something else, too. This paradigm that we have in our in our culture of joy and sacrifice. Maybe this is just the immigrant mentality I've grown up with, but that through really hard work, when you accomplish something, Thing, then you have like sheer joy and you see that on the faces of these kids and teenagers but uh, definitely grueling process to try and make uh, the nutcracker happen well that's the thing they make it look so easy right and they make it look effortless and that's also probably a grueling part of the process is that we don't ever see that on stage no, you see uh, people flitting across the stage elegantly, just the picture of grace and perfection. And yeah, if you had to mic the stage, if you got to put your ear right on the stage, you would hear their their feet hitting the ground and how much, you know, you'd think about how much pressure that is on the body Oof, yeah. and just the emotional stress of it all too. It's so much work. Wow. Amazing. So when does it start streaming? December 10. So that's uh, next Friday, Friday of next week. And you can watch it online um, on their website. It'll be streaming for free. Uh, excellent. It's called The Reality of a Dream. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sorry, Raji. So while they're talking about the Go Ballet, they can't have the huge performances like they would normally have at this time of year for the Nutcracker. So they've got smaller ones that they're going out to some schools to do, and as well this great documentary called The Reality of a Dream streaming next Friday, December 10th. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when you call for an ambulance, when you call for help, when you call 911, you want that to arrive promptly. Nobody wants to have to call, but when you do, you really want that service to show up quickly. So it's been with a lot of dismay over the last few months. We've talked about issues of people having when they call 911 and they ask for an ambulance. In some cases, they are put on hold and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Now, the reason for that is the, there were not enough people to get answer the call at the ambulance end of things. So the callers at Ecom at 911 there, the call takers, had to wait until their caller was connected to an ambulance dispatcher. Well, that is about to change. To explain to us what is going on at Ecom, Oliver Gruder Andrew joins us now, the president and CEO of Ecom. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Pleasure. So what is changing? So we're changing part of the process by which our call takers now have discretion whether to stay on the line with the caller for ambulance or, in fact, let that individual on their own waiting for ambulance to connect. Now, that's not necessarily a great experience. However, um, there are other risks to consider. And what we've seen in the last few months is that when our call takers are tied up on the ambulance line, calls to 911 can build up. And so it can take minutes rather than the few seconds it should for British Columbians to hear, do you need police, fire or ambulance? And of course, 70% of the incoming calls are for police and fire, not for ambulance. And so those wait times uh, for ambulance services not only affect people who are in need of ambulance support, but also those who need either police or fire. 
And so the change we've made is to allow our call takers, who are very experienced, very well trained, and specially picked for this job, to consider the circumstances, consider the nature of the call that they've received for ambulance, and to consider what's happening on the 911 line at that time, and to make a good decision for British Columbians. And um, that change in policy will allow that to happen. So you're saying they can use their discretion, but can you give us some examples of cases where they might where they might use that discretion and say, all right, I'm going to hang up now while you wait on hold? Absolutely. There are you know, many cases where uh, the person who is injured is not on their own. They have a friend, a family member with them who maybe even makes the call. And the injury is not life-threatening. You know, it could be um, a broken leg, um, it, for example, it, it, which is not pleasant. We don't want that experience. But when you make a choice between staying on the line as an e-com call taker who has no medical training and can provide no assistance whatsoever to that individual in a situation like that, or for that call taker to take the next 911 line call, say, do you need police fire ambulance and possibly help with a domestic assault or somebody's house on fire? That's the decision that we're now able to make. And um, we trust our call takers. I fully trust our professionals to make really good decisions with this new latitude. Right. So that sounds like a big if there, though, Oliver, right? Because you're putting a lot of trust in that discretion. Um, Well, correct. But remember, our staff are never on their own. We operate a fairly large-sized contact center. Uh, For the most part, there's dozens of people working there at a time. Um, And there are supervisors, there are team leads. There's a lot of support built around this. Plus, we've been working on this change very carefully for a number of weeks, in fact, over a month now, with our colleagues in BC Ambulance Service. We have scripts that were given to us by ECBC Ambulance, questions to ask of the callers, um, and establish the, the situation that's going on. And I'm very clear with our staff that I don't want anybody to be uncomfortable about doing this. Uh, and uh, there is information and help available to individual staff members. But there is now also the option to make a choice and to say there is something else happening that needs urgent attention. And I now have the ability to turn to so would you say then that there's been more training that has been given uh, to the e-com call taker so that they feel comfortable asking the right questions? There's uh, been more uh, question help from BC Ambulance Services that we've worked on together. Questions our call takers can ask and questions that are playing on an automated message from BC Ambulance Service to the caller. And yes, we have instructed our call takers how to make this change. And there's process flows and communication about it. Um, and, and I want to stress, it's the change itself in the process isn't that dramatic in terms of what to do next for our call taker. The reason why it took time to work through to this point is because of the many dependencies on our ambulance colleagues, our fire and our police colleagues. And we wanted to make sure we do this right. Right. So this was this like, um, Oliver, the last choice to make here, because like there was a lot of pressure to fix something in the system. It's by if by last choice, you mean, is this the, the definitive choice? Um, no, this is a temporary solution to deal with a high pressure right. problem that we're all experiencing right now. We will be reviewing this on a monthly basis. We know that our colleagues in BC Ambulance are working very hard to fill additional positions. Uh, We all know that they've been given funding and there's strong recruiting and training going on. So this is not a forever situation. 
And as you've heard me say before, Simi, really longer term, we need to look at the system as a whole, and we do need more resources in the system. There is underfunding in the system. This is a temporary relief for British Columbians, especially those who need police and fire. Right. And is Ecom also hiring more people? We are hiring more people, uh, and uh, we are looking for more funding to hire even more people than we are staffed with before. You know, it's also well known that we are understaffed and we are underfunded, and that is a big stress on our people as well. And part of the change is to take some of the pressure off our staff in certain situations because our staff don't like to be on the line with a caller when they really can make no difference at all. And yet they see the 911 calls building up in the queue, not knowing what's behind those calls and what help somebody might need. Will they have the ability to go back and check in with somebody? If do you know if they feel like, okay, I have to do this right now, but I will check back in with you. Can they do that? Um, no, that's not easily possible once they've disconnected from the caller. Uh, and uh, But we are giving instructions to the caller on what to do should the situation they find themselves in worsen considerably. And bear in mind that we also have a priority line arrangement with the BC Ambulance Service. So if a caller comes in in the first place with what is clearly a severe condition, then our call takers have the ability to prioritize that call um, and certainly stay on the line in those situations. Okay, well, that's interesting then. So what you're saying is, will Ecom be able to make better judgments about who needs an ambulance faster? Um, we've been given the right information by the BC Ambulance Service to help do that, yes. Bear in mind that we're not trained to triage medically. Uh, we're following instructions from the BC Ambulance Service. But yes, we're going to be able to help make a determination where the most urgent need is. It's just a reality that we're all in the circumstance of restrained resources at the moment. There's more happening than we can put people onto at all the time. And the question is, how do we make priorities for the most urgent things that British Columbians are dealing with? And that's what this is about. And so when does this get put into place, Oliver? It is in place now. Okay. And so you'll be reviewing that on a monthly basis. Absolutely. With BC Ambulance, looking at the statistics, looking at the data flows, uh, and this is constantly being monitored. So uh, it's not like it's a, a change that nobody is paying attention to. There's the effects of this are constantly being monitored. Well, then I have a feeling we'll be talking to you more about it. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. I'll be happy to come back anytime. Appreciate that. It's Oliver Gruder-Andrew, who's the president and CEO of Ecom, talking about changes that are being made in effect now to the 911 system, particularly if you are calling for an ambulance. What do you think about what was just described to us by Oliver? You can drop me an email, simi at cknw.com.